You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, we're airing a best-of show, revisiting some recent interviews with folks around our islands who have unique jobs. We start with work to save our ocean environment. Meet Dave Cohen, who oversees the state's sea urchin hatchery on Sand Island. His ohana years ago affectionately dubbed him the mayor of Urchin City. I first met him more than a decade ago, just before the very first outplanting of little urchins on a patch of reef in Kaneohe Bay. On the morning of our interview, his team of researchers from the state's Division of Aquatic Resources was out in the water deploying a new army of seaweed-loving soldiers. The fight is against invasive species that smother our coral reefs. We take you inside the Department of Land and Natural Resources Laboratory, where it all began. Here's a re-air of our interview with Cohen, where he talks about their success using urchins as biocontrol. It's a complicated process. In order to raise the urchins, you need to raise their food. So we're standing in this lab. You've got flasks everywhere, bubbling, kind of mad scientist <laughs> set up here. So what are we looking at? So we're in our phytoplankton culture room. So phytoplankton are single-celled algae that we isolate from the ocean. And we're growing two different species in here, and we're growing them to feed to urchin larvae. What you're seeing here is a 40-liter cylinder, one species of algae called a diatom. And then over here in this room, this is our what we call our mass culture side. These are 100 liter cylinders, and we're growing a, a, a phytoplankton uh, that's a cryptophyte. It's called Rhodomonas. They're 100 liter cylinders. They're about a foot in diameter, and yes, they're about four and a half, five feet tall. All this great effort that you're going to is for conservation. Yes. So the idea here is that we're, we're growing sea urchins in order to eat invasive seaweed that's been growing on coral reefs, primarily coral reefs in Kaneohe Bay. And when you and I talked, it was maybe 10, 12 years ago, you had a very modest setup. We were just getting started. What happened was um, I came on board in late 2009. We did our first hatchery run in August of 2010. And the day that I met you was in January of 2011. And that was the night before we did our very first release of urchins into Kaneohe Bay. We're doing out plantings um, right now every other week. We're about to go into a, a phase where we're gonna be planting urchins every week. And we're putting out between four and 6,000 with each out planting. Uh, last year, we outplanted over 250,000, and this year we're on track to do about 120 or 140,000 urchins. I mean, that's just astounding when you think, I mean, did you ever imagine you'd get to this point? I, I did imagine it. I imagined it many times. I just didn't think it would take this long. We, we just sort of took things one bottleneck at a time, one step at a time. And I was very enthusiastic, and I, was, I had great hopes we just met each bottleneck and sometimes they took a little bit longer than we thought they would. Yesterday was we had we had outplanted the 900,000th sea urchin and we're on track to plant outplant uh, number 1 million in early November. We're we're very excited about that. It's it's really fun. And what does that mean for the reef? So right now what we're seeing out in Kaneohe Bay is most of the reefs in Kaneohe Bay are looking pretty good. There is seaweed coming back and our field team goes out a couple of times a year and they survey the reefs and they spot treat the areas where the invasive seaweed is returning. The next stop, hatchery manager David Cohen took us into the larval room. We peer deep into large black water tanks where the larvae are fed and technician Matt Lewis checks on their progress a couple of times a day. Look in here. I don't know if you can see all those little dots. Yes. Those are... 18-day-old sea urchin larvae, and they look like they've been eating really well. How can you tell? Because the water is fairly clear compared to how it looked a few hours ago. They're hungry. They are, they are hungry urchins. And our technician, Matt, has just walked in. Matt, are you about to do the afternoon uh, water samples? Yeah. Okay, so Matt's going to do the afternoon water samples see how well they're eating. So you, you check these twice a day? Once in the morning to see how well they ate overnight, and then once in the afternoon to see how much they need to be fed again overnight to get them through until the next day when Matt comes in to take care of them. So he needs to take the samples, 
measure the samples, and then make a decision as to how much he's going to feed before it's time for him to go home at the end of the day. So these procedures, these are just things that you developed uh, over the last decade or so. I mean, yeah. it's been trial and error. Yeah. So. Th this particular process, this particular routine was established pretty early on. This is kind of a standard routine. I had, I had done aquaculture work before. I'd worked in a shellfish hatchery and I'd worked in a shrimp hatchery. And again, when you're taking care of animals, they need to be fed periodically. So whether it's once a day, twice a day, or three times a day, or continually, you need to monitor to the amount of food that the animals are eating so you can then feed them up accordingly. So this is the larval room, and in order to get larvae, we collect urchins from the wild. We'll get them to spawn. Usually when we bring them in, we'll put them into a tank, give them about 15 minutes of sort of a rest period. Once they've rested, usually the males will begin to spawn. After about 15 or 20 minutes, we start to collect sperm. That will go on for a half an hour or so. And then around that time, the females will begin to spawn. We'll collect eggs from all the females. We'll bring them in here. We'll fertilize eggs. We'll take a look at them. Uh, the following day, we'll come in and we'll have free swimming larvae in a beaker. Then the, the fellas and, and the women that work here will siphon off the best larvae and count them and stock our larval rearing tanks. On the third day, they begin to eat, which is what we're seeing right now with Matt. Um, what we'll do is Matt will come in in the morning or a technician will come in in the morning and they'll take a water sample. They'll see how much the urchins ate the night before. They'll count the, the amount of algae on the slide. Then they'll, do a, they'll take a larval sample and do a population size and health assessment. Then they'll do either a water exchange or a tank change and clean the water. They'll feed the animals a known quantity. A few hours later, they'll come in They'll look at a water sample again to see how much the animals have eaten. And then if they need to be fed, they'll feed them again and tuck them in overnight. Yeah, it's like taking care of babies. There you go. It's exactly the same. We then went through the main warehouse where rows and rows of tanks are organized to deal with each stage of growth of the urchins. The building that we're standing in was built in the 1970s for prawn aquaculture. It's a greenhouse because freshwater prawns like it really, really hot. So it's a wonderful building because it's big and it's covered and there's got all this great aquaculture equipment in it, but it's really old and it's really hot. And um, so we're always fighting the temperature in here, trying to make sure things are cooler. We like to have the light coming through because we like to grow different kinds of algae. We grow single-celled algae and phytoplankton. We grow benthic diatoms, which are single-celled algae that grow on the surfaces of things that make up our, our biofilms. And we grow seaweed or macroalgae as well. So we like having the light, but we don't like having the heat so much. This uh, facility deals with what stage of the urchin? So this part of the facility deals with the sta stage of the urchin when they're getting ready to when they're getting ready to settle and when they've first settled. So in other words, we have an urchin, a pelagic urchin larvae, a larvae that's free swimming, or a larvae that's in the water column. It gets ready to settle, and we move it into this tank over here. It settles here, and once it's settled, we we then take that urchin and move it to another part of the greenhouse for grow out. That was an interview with State Sea Urchin Hatchery Manager Dave Cohen that originally aired on August 11th, 2022. Cohen says once the urchins get to a stage where they grow spikes, staffers collect a couple of thousand to disperse out in the bay. It's labor intensive, but the numbers speak for themselves. Kudos to Cohen and his team as they move toward that one million urchin mark before the year's end.
with eight different climate zones and hundreds of unique species, the island of Hawaii is well known for its rich ecological diversity. But it's also home to a mysterious underworld, a web map of lava tubes that contain undiscovered life. And now it's someone's job to explore that realm beneath our feet. The University of Hawaii at Manoa researchers Megan Porter and Becky Chong are part of a team that was awarded over a million dollars earlier this year by the National Science Foundation for the project. We revisit the interview, the conversation Savannah Harriman Pope did with the researchers about what they hope to find. It's a big undertaking, Porter says, because Hawaii Island has more lava tubes than anywhere else in the world. I like to think of the island as Swiss cheese because there's so many lava tubes underneath your feet when you're walking around. And Becky, how big are these lava tubes? They can really range in size. Um, They tend to be just below the surface, so near, but they can range into these massive passages with multiple layers of rock fall along the bottom. But sometimes we actually end up going through these really tiny passages where we have to actually squeeze through and even line the floor with trash bags to facilitate our crawling through and slipping (laughs) through these pretty narrow passages. So it's a whole uh, network. Here in the station, I often joke that we're in a basement, and so I can spend my entire day without seeing the sun. What's it like to work primarily in a subterranean environment? I would say it's uh, quite an experience from a sensory perspective. Uh, We start the day off early in the morning, and we get to our first field site, and we just descend below ground, and we're in these dark voids, just using our headlamps to make our way through these passages. And we'll spend several hours underground. Sometimes we'll even have lunch underground, and then end up surfacing just before sunset. And so oftentimes we'll we'll go days without really catching much daylight. (laughs) Yeah, I think the really unique thing from the human perspective about these environments is There's very few places you go in your daily life that have a complete lack of light. It's a really almost spiritual experience if you're by yourself underground and you sit and turn off your light and have that sensory deprivation. Um, There's no sound. There's no light. The only thing you can hear is sort of your own breathing. One of the rare times you sit still long enough to hear your own heartbeat. It's really a unique experience, I think, that most people don't get in their day-to-day life. What you're describing to some people might be considered a a waking nightmare. But (laughs) when, (laughs) when you two talk about it, you have these huge smiles on your faces. When you first started working in these environments, was there kind of an adjustment to, as you said, this absolutely dark, quiet, still setting. I have to admit, so I've been caving. Um, I started on the mainland in in limestone caves uh, over 30 years ago. So I've been, at this point, I'm very comfortable underground. Uh, But I'll admit that when I started, it wasn't my idea. As an undergraduate in um, my first year of college, my roommate wanted to do it, and she didn't want to do it alone. So she signed us up for a trip. And it turns out she hated it, and I loved it <laughs> almost immediately. I just loved this experience of going somewhere that, that few people, if anyone, has ever been before. And that, that sense of exploration and discovery um, got me hooked immediately. You've both just received a significant boon in order to further study this unique space in the island chain, but also in the world. What kind of creatures are you finding make their home in these almost alien environments? There's there's a whole range of, of really interesting um, animals underground that I th- don't think many people really know anything about, which is part of the reason we're really excited about this grant and, and able to do this research. They, they range from spiders to plant toppers to assassin bugs uh, to relatives of water striders. I'm going to stop you. Assassin yep. bug? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so as, as the name suggests, it's a predator. So of, only of other insects. So no worries. They're not, they're not huge. But all of these creatures have hallmarks of having evolved to live specifically in these environments. They have generally lost their eyes. They're generally very pale to white. They tend to have reduced wings. They have very long appendages. So they're really unique animals that you you just don't see these sorts of forms in other environments. I think one of the other striking things is 
the number of different species that we actually find in these cave environments, which is really unique. On Big Island, there are 44 currently described cave species. And through our research, we're finding that there's a lot more diversity and kind of distributions to be uh, explored in terms of where this biodiversity exists. And um, in addition to all the different lineages that Megan just talked about, we're also interested in seeing how these different species are interacting with each other across these landscapes. I grew up on Hawaii Island, and I've been in in lava tubes a handful of times. I know people who have them on their properties. I know people who uh, visit them semi-regularly. But for me, they're still a largely mysterious space. What is there in scientific record about these cave systems even just how far they range, do we know where they are? But also, again, the the creepy crawlies <laughs> that call them home. The island of Hawaii in particular is really interesting because you still have active volcanoes forming lava tubes all the way to some of the older volcanoes where lava tubes have started to weather away. And um, we see this whole range of systems in different ages, which is really interesting. But they're all really tied to what's going on on the surface. They are dependent on, on roots from trees above coming into the system. So they're very tightly linked to the surface and, and very tightly linked to, uh, in particular, the, the native ohia tree, we think, is, is critical as a food source for these systems and all the creepy crawlies that we find there. Yeah, and I think kind of what we know about the history, although we've studied uh, Hawaii from a geological perspective for a long time, these cave-adapted fauna hadn't really been discovered until just 50 years ago, which is kind of shocking. People didn't really expect to find such diversity in the first place. And it turns out that once we started looking, that we were finding a lot. And even now today, when we go and we go on our expeditions, we're finding new range extensions or, you know, back in 2019, Megan discovered this assassin bug. You discovered the assassin bug? (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, so the the work on on, um, the island of Hawaii, actually, it's fairly recent. Um, You know, these cave animals, insects, were really only discovered and described starting in the early 1970s. So we're talking about 50 years of work, maybe. Um, And there was originally uh, sort of this assassin bug described from one of the first systems uh, documented really well in terms of biology. But that was the only place that we really knew that it existed. And through our work, we've, we've been finding it in lava tubes all over the island. And so one of our big questions is, is it the same species or not? We think it's it's probably a different species. And then how is it getting from cave to cave as, as these lava tubes form? Are they are they moving from cave to cave? Are they going above ground? Some of them go in and out of the caves. So there's a lot of complexity there, I think, that mm. that we're, we're really starting to investigate. Mm. You talk about Hawaii Island and the different geological time that you can document in a different cave system as you start with a really young mountain like Kilauea, which is still erupting, towards the older mountains and the older spaces on the island like Kohala. Could you extrapolate that out even further and look at the rest of the island chain and kind of project what you might find in a lava tube on Maui or even here, just outside the city? Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting ideas that came out of the the early work, earlier work that really described these systems is the idea that the ecosystem in a lava tube has a life cycle. So there's, you know, the initial formation when that habitat becomes available, there's, you know, and, and communities of insects move in. And then over time, because they are tend to be shallow systems, they weather away and those habitats disappear. So one of the things that the island of Hawaii provides is that full time scale for us to look at, which then does allow us to sort of predict what we might find on the other islands that are older and and where those systems are more weathered. Yeah, I would say that we're using uh, Hawaii Island as our kind of experimental playground, if you will, where we have volcanoes of different ages 
representing larger land masses, but also each of those volcanoes have gradients of different flows of varying ages. So that also allows us to do really fine scale comparisons about how biodiversity or how these creepy crawlies differ as these habitats change over time. And we can take one snapshot and compare across both the younger and to mid and older volcanoes and lava flow systems to see that. And ideally, our goal is to eventually extrapolate and look at how that biodiversity scales across the archipelago. That was a rebroadcast of an interview HBR Savannah Harriman Pope did with the University of Hawaii at Manoa professors Becky Chong and Megan Porter. They were speaking about what wonders may be found in lava tubes on the island of Hawaii. The interview originally aired on March 29, Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin Monday, September 19th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. This week on Science Friday, that scary wasp at your weekend picnic? Don't reach for the rolled up newspaper just yet. In a world without wasps, we would have a lot of other insects that we possibly find almost as irritating as wasps are. So we should be really celebrating the wasp and thanking them. Why wasps deserve your thanks on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Native Books and PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back to The Conversation. This is Catherine Cruz. We continue with our Cool Jobs Hana Ho show, showcasing recent interviews with people with some pretty interesting jobs. Coming up later, we'll talk to the creator of Lilo and Stitch about the film's 20th anniversary. But right now, let's get to an interview with an illustrator from our islands. The work of cartoonist and illustrator R. Kikuo Johnson appears regularly in books, ads, periodicals, animation, and on the cover of the New Yorker magazine. He was awarded a gold medal in 2018 in the editorial category by the Society of Illustrators. Although he usually visits his Maui Ohana once a year, COVID recently took the snowbird away from the islands until last December when he came to Oahu for a book signing. We revisit the interview the conversations Lillian Song did with Johnson about his process and recent graphic novella entitled No One Else. Kikuo, this third graphic novel, you tell a very serious story and you have that ability to just pull me right in with your clean lines of illustration, the simple color palette that just popped with complementary colors. The first few panels lead the reader straight into the stressed out life of single mom, nurse Charlene, who's caregiving for her aging dad, taking care of young son Brandon. The narrative easy to follow and surprising pockets of humor that just amused me along the way. I just had to keep reading to just see how the drama unfolded as you know, you, you were popped into this family's not-so-perfect life. So tell me, what sparked you to tell this story? Yeah, wow, thank you so much for that close reading. Not that many people have read it yet, so it's nice to hear the feedback. What originally sparked the story, like, years ago, it was just a casual conversation I was having with a friend, and at the time, I was, I'm always working on different stories, always working on what might be a seed for a new graphic novel. And the kind of stories I really love, just human interest stories, a friend of mine was telling me about a friend of hers 
grandfather died and the family didn't know what to do with the ashes. The ashes ended up underneath the sink with the cleaning products. And eventually another family member found them and the ashes got buried in the backyard. For all the seeds of stories that I work on over the years, for whatever reason, that one really resonated. Imagining what would drive a family into that scenario. And it seemed dark, sad, also kind of funny. It had all the elements of art that I really love, which is some of my favorite movies and books are those movies and books that make you feel two opposite emotions at the same time. And from that little seed, I developed the rest of the narrative that's in no one else. But originally, it all was set on the East Coast where I was living, and it was never quite resonating. The characters never quite made sense, but it wasn't until I was home in Maui, was overlooking the sugarcane field and imagined it set right there that suddenly these people became real to me. These became people I grew up with. These became people in my own family, just very familiar. And that was kind of the catalyst that really brought the book together and made me sit down and be like, okay, I got to draw this. By resetting the family into Maui, everything clicked. I was hooked by familiar island architecture, landmarks, <laughs> even bumper stickers. La Feline, so hearts out to Batman the cat. Oh, when you threw an auntie and the pigeon... It's like, <laughs> bam, my appreciation just went up a notch. I found myself really vested in this dysfunctional family. Even Charlene's brother, beer-bellied, wandering musician Robbie, who wasn't present in caregiving with dad. In his actions with his sister and his nephew, though, he grew on me. And I couldn't put the mouse down. I just had to keep clicking until the very last page. And then I found myself going back to the top and rereading because... I would discover details and panels that I missed, like the spam cat or the sign to the Maui Humane Society. And then <laughs> upon further readings, seeing how much Brandon makes those smooching sounds calling to Batman. There's so much going on. How do you keep track? In terms of weaving all those threads together, it, it was a little tricky having three protagonists, in a sense. It was really important to have all three characters in this family have their own arc, their own path of discovery. And... You're right. Like each one is told slightly differently. And to your point, the young son, Brandon, and his relationship with his missing cat, Batman, is mostly told visually. That was something that I really wanted in this book from the start. It's, it's something I really love about comics in general. You know, one of my favorite cartoonists, his name is Chester Brown. He likes to say that comics is powerful because of its silence and its stillness. The power of comics to kind of distill a moment into a single, still, silent image is really powerful. And it's something I love. Comics that make you really look at the drawings and really kind of invest yourself in these really simple but narratively full drawings. And no one else really resonated with me on another level as a caregiver of aging parents. What sort mm. of research do you go through in the writing, in this illustrating process? Yeah. You know, that's a relationship that I don't think you see that often in pop culture, the kind of adult caregiving. It's not a particularly sexy topic, but it's something I thought a lot about just watching my four grandparents age. I lost them across 30 years, and I noticed with each death, my own family get reshuffled in big and small ways, and I think that's true for everyone. And... Thinking about uh, specifically uh, my grandparents who lived on Oahu that I would visit from Maui every winter. And, and as they aged, I would spend the entire summer with them and my mom and watching my mom kind of take care of my grandparents. I've heard other authors talk about how like they might work on a project for years. And it's only in the final year that they realize what that book is even about. And that was kind of true for me, too, with no one else. I think by the end of the process of working with these characters and living with this, I was realizing that I was trying to make sense of the end of life and all the, the difficulties that my mom kind of went through and also the difficulties that everyone goes through. But the book itself is completely not autobiographical, at least in the actual events that take place. You know, Charlene is also a caregiver of her young son, and these instances of both the child and the, the adult relying on one another, there's a lot of potential there for the humor as well. So I saw that as an opportunity to play with maybe dry humor and also tackle a really serious topic. Hmm. On a timeline, how long did no one else take from idea to publication? I think I wrote no one else probably in 2010. 
I wrote the, the basic script. And then in around 2015, I was sitting in Wailuku at my family's house watching a sugarcane burn. So that five years later, watching this huge cloud of smoke like rise over Maui and just thinking, this is so crazy. I can't believe we still burn sugarcane and I can't believe there's still a mushroom cloud hovering over Maui. I put those two things together and suddenly that story made sense. The story of that I had written five years earlier, combining it with the, with the sugarcane fire. And then the next year, 2016, that was when the last harvest was. And so maybe it was just in the zeitgeist, but having this feeling that that kind of sugarcane was going to end kind of became part of the story, even though it's not explicitly mentioned in the text. A couple of years later, I had a time, a place in my career where, you know, living in New York isn't cheap, but I finally found a chance where I was like, okay, I think I'm in a good place right now. My career is in a good place. I can take a couple of years off and actually draw this thing. So actual drawing and, and working out of the book took about two years. And it's such a slow process, drawing comics, but it is the most creatively satisfying thing that, that I've ever done. It was two of my happiest years of my life. In your books, it seems like boats, fishing pop up. Is there a waterman in your life? Are you a waterman? <laughs> uh, well, you know, as a teenager, fishing was something, uh, just a way to get out of the house and spend the night on the beach <laughs> and really kind of get into trouble with my friends. In my first book, Night Fisher, that was kind of the general metaphor. But as I keep working, I keep finding myself called back to that theme and I think just as a narrative theme of throwing a hook into the depths or the unseen or the unconscious, I think just keeps returning to my work. I read how you work through college and you also teach at the Rhode Island School of Design. You've been in the industry and have quite a body of work. You've garnered well-deserved recognition in your profession. What can you share with our younger listeners about pursuing art? Yeah, so, so I went to art school which was a great experience, and spent three years during art school bussing tables on Maui at a Roots Chris Steakhouse in Wailea. And then when I moved to New York, I applied to be a busser at a Roots Chris Steakhouse in Times Square. And they hired me as a waiter, and I stayed there for eight more years cutting my teeth and trying to build up enough clients where I could you know, still pay rent in Brooklyn, but also I had enough freelance clients to do editorial illustration for. So that was a long process, but super rewarding. What I would tell students is that what really kind of got me in the door and what made anybody even think that I was hireable for magazines was the first thing I did was I published Night Fisher. It was a comic book, the graphic novel that I was working on in college. And art directors love hiring comic book artists because a comic book artist can tell a story. And, you know, a lot of painters or illustrators, they get really good at drawing one thing, but comic book artists have to draw everything. We have to draw chairs and the back of a phone, just random things that you'd never otherwise have to draw. So art directors love comic book artists. But beyond just comic art, kind of in that same story, I would tell students, if you have a passion and there's something you really, really want to do, there's something you want to do with your art in almost any creative field, it starts with just doing it, right? It started with me just making that comic. I didn't know if anybody would publish it. And there's a chance that it wouldn't have gotten published. But without that first step of just doing exactly what you want to do, the odds of you getting to do what you want to do are pretty low. So I would just encourage all the creative people just to, just to make it, just to do it. If you want to do book covers, make book covers for books you love, regardless if you're assigned to do that. If you want to make comic books, make comic books. If you want to make film make the short films with your iPhone, whatever you can do. And that's the first step. That's really, really the first step. And you'll always do your best work if you're doing exactly what you want to do. In the professional sphere, that's difficult, especially when I was first starting out. I'd get projects strictly to pay the rent and might not be particularly interesting. My first job was to draw diagram sex positions for Men's Health magazine, which maybe to some people is very interesting. <laughs> but as an illustrator at that time, was kind of dry and I did a terrible job at it. But as my career goes on, like you find ways to engage yourself in even the boring projects and, and eventually the projects get more engaging. You get more and more hired for, for your specific talent. Well, I will have to say, you know, now that your career has blown up, another notch in your belt is having Senator Maisie Hirono tweet about one of your New Yorker covers. Uh, yeah, that was a real, really special moment. I couldn't believe that Maisie Hirono was retweeting my New Yorker cover I don't know if she had any idea that I'm from Hawaii. 
she probably doesn't even know that she actually was classmates with my parents at UH. I don't think she's aware of any of that, but she retweeted a cover that I did for The New Yorker that was addressing some of the anti-Asian American violence here in here on the mainland. That was, yeah, a tough moment and a tough call to get, but I was really grateful to have an opportunity and terrified to have the opportunity to kind of do a cover about that. And yeah, Maisie, Maisie retweeted it. Wow, a small world. Your parents went to school with her. Yeah, yeah, that, oh, wow. that was good. They're same generation, yeah, mm-hmm, same class. Mm-hmm. Well, see, you have a great thing to talk about if you guys ever get set next to each other at a dinner party. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I look forward to that dinner. And we're, we're both on the East Coast half the year, so maybe, you, you should just DM someday. her and say, hey, I'm from Hawaii, too. And, you know, yeah. that's so cool. So how do you feel about print versus web to access content? As an illustrator, it's interesting because they present two very different formal challenges. Everything printed on a magazine has a very limited color palette. It's basically the, all the colors you can mix with four inks, the cyan, magenta, yellow, and black. Whereas the RGB palette on a computer screen is much more wide and allows for many more colors, which is not necessarily a good thing. Like more options is not necessarily better from a design perspective. So that's probably really technical, but that's actually the way I think about it. It's almost like two different mediums. It's like paint versus pastel. In terms of consumption and exposure, it's much easier to reach people digitally. Uh, It's much easier to give it away in a link than it is to sell it on a piece of paper, which is amazing and I think is great for exposure, especially for young artists. In terms of me reading and consuming the comics that I love, nothing beats print. That was a rebroadcast of an interview Maui-born cartoonist and illustrator R. Kikuo Johnson did with the conversation's Lillian Song. The interview originally aired on November 4th, 2021. Imagine a job where the thing you put your blood, sweat, and tears into to create becomes beloved by millions for multiple generations. That's what happened to writer-director Chris Sanders after the release of Lilo and Stitch in 2002. The Disney classic was the first feature-length animated film to be set in Hawaii, and it was a huge success. It grossed nearly $300 million worldwide and received an Oscar nomination. It also spawned three sequels and three television series. Sanders eventually went on to direct popular animated features like How to Train Your Dragon and The Croods. Let's revisit the interview that The Conversation's Russell Subiano did with the longtime animator about the 20th anniversary of the release of Lilo and Stitch. From the first day of writing the script to the day it was released in theaters, did you at any time think it would achieve the level of success that it did? I was hopeful, but of course you don't know that. I would say though, that a lot of the things that created Lilo and Stitch were from Mulan. And so one of the aspects that I hoped for, for Lilo and Stitch was that it would have the staying power. I hoped to create something that would really just be ubiquitous and that would stick around. And that's what happened with Lilo and Stitch. Stitch in particular, when I go to Florida and I visit Disney World, I can go into different stores. And even here at Disneyland, I go into a store, they might have an entire section of the store devoted to Stitch and only more so every year. And so the thing about that that I am so grateful for and so proud of and and just still so amazed by is that he really had this ability to join the core of that Disney universe. So you can buy a picture frame and Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Stitch will be on the frame. And that just, it's so thrilling to me because that character has been embraced by people in a way that I really and truly could only have hoped for. One other thing in the movie that is uniquely Hawaiian is that you chose as the center of the movie, this idea of Ohana. Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind. 
Was Ohana something you knew about prior to writing the movie? I have come to believe there's a destiny for these films, I guess would be the way to say it. I don't want to get too like all like hoogly woogly about it, but no, it wasn't there in the beginning. The genesis of, of Lilo and Stitch was partially that I wanted to create a, a film around the idea of a villain becoming a hero. So we spend a lot of time killing villains at the end of Disney films. And this time I thought, let's, let's change that up. I want a villain that becomes the hero. So we have this little guy and I was looking for a place to set the film. And originally I was thinking like maybe rural Kansas or something. And there was a reason for that. I didn't want to like really gather a crowd. It was a reaction to Milan where we were moving like armies of people and we were dealing with cities full of people. And logistically that can be pretty tiring. <laughs> so I thought, okay, next film, smaller population. And as I was working on Lilo and Stitch, developing it and getting ready to pitch the idea, I looked up at my wall and I had a map of Hawaii because I had recently visited. And it took me a while, a few hours. And suddenly I thought, wait a minute, that's a place that has an intimacy. And why wouldn't I just set it there as a story? It was, it was, I don't know. There was something so like magical about it. It was, I was kind of resistant to it. Even it just, just myself. I was like, can I do that? <laughs> it's weird to say that. And I thought, yeah, why not? Why not set this in Hawaii? After we screened the film for the first time, just for ourselves in story sketch form, we didn't have any animation. We just do it all in story sketch first. We were looking at this film and we were seeing this character change from bad to good, but we didn't have a reason. He was changing from bad to good pretty much just because it was our plan. Like, see, he, see, he became good. And after the first screening, I was the one that said, we don't have the engine yet. We have all these things, but we need the engine. We need the reason that he becomes good. And we realized that Stitch has a family that loves him and that that was the thing that would change him. The idea of Ohana was the perfect thing to place around this character. And that would be the thing that would change him. That would change the course of his life. We didn't know originally, but by complete just accident, I put Stitch in the one place that had the best, most beautiful interpretation of family ever. Did you have to talk to people from Hawaii or did you have to come to Hawaii to do a little bit more research as to how deep it goes or how inclusive it can be? We did. We came to Hawaii, but we also continued to make connections with everyone that we could and that we needed to. So when it came to the music and the culture and the language, we cast as many people as we could that knew what they were doing. And we found as many people like a good example would be the Kumahula. He staged the dance sequences that we videotaped and gave to the animators because we understood from those connections that this is something that you've got to get it right. You do not mess around with this. It's not my culture, but I'm in charge of getting it right. So Mark Kelii Ho'omalu was our kumahula and you know he told us everything we needed to know about everything. He was one of those people that gave us more than we ever could have hoped for, culturally, language-wise, just stories, everything. But he also co-wrote some of the music with Alan Silvestri. So he, he's just the perfect example. But we had many, many people that we got together with. We also partnered with the uh, Kamehameha School. And their choir is, is the choir that sings in the movie, for example. So that was just, for us, an exercise in humility and letting people who know what they're doing help us. And speaking about local voices, I, I wanted to ask you about the actors that you chose to voice the characters. This movie came out a year after Shrek, which I get the feeling that that was kind of a big turning point in animated feature where more and more well-known movie actors started getting cast for these voiceover roles. But your movie didn't really go after the most famous actors out there. In fact, you got some real locals to voice some of the characters. You got Tia Carrere, you got Jason Scott Lee. You sure it's a dog? Uh-huh. He used to be a collie before he got ran over. How's it? Nani. Did you catch fire again? Nah, just the stage. Listen, I was wondering, if you're not doing anything this- David, I told you, I can't. I, 
Look, I gotta go. The kid at table three is throwing poi again. Maybe some other time, okay? Don't worry. She likes her butt and fancy hair. I know. I read her diary. You got Kuneva Mook, who you were just talking about. Was it a conscious decision to cast Hawaiians to voice the Hawaiian characters? Yeah, there are two sides of that question. But the first most important one was, yes, we found as many people that we could that were from Hawaii. The only one that we struggled with was the character of Lilo. And we had casting directors scour Hawaii. At that time, we couldn't find the right voice. And that was a very, very difficult voice to cast. Even here in the mainland, it was Dean Deblois. He's my co-writer and co-director, and we partnered in everything on this film. We worked so hard looking for the right voice. And you get to the point where you think, are we just going to have to settle for like an okay voice, you know? And it's weird because it's elusive. I'll know it when I hear it, you know? And one day this girl came in and her name was Debay Chase and she sat at the microphone and she started you know, doing her thing. And Dean and I looked at each other and we knew we had found her. So that was the only voice that we, that we really wished we could have cast from Hawaii, but, and we gave it a shot. It wasn't in the cards at that time. On the subject of famous versus non-famous, we get pressure sometimes from the studio, but I think that we found the, oh, the perfect cast. And continuing to speak about voices, in addition to coming up with the idea for the film and co-directing and co-writing it, you're also the voice of Stitch. And it's an interesting choice, something that can be both cute and scary at the same time, I think. How do you come up with the voice for Stitch? Originally, the concept was that he wouldn't speak at all. He might make a few little noises like growls and stuff, but he would never speak. As we worked on the film, it became obvious that he would have to talk. And sometimes he would be talking more than we wished he would, but he had to for the role. As we pitched the early storyboards, when I pitched my boards, I would just give that character that voice. It's a voice that I would use to call people on the phone and annoy them. And just, you know, it was just this dumb voice I used from time to time when it, when it felt right. <laughs> but eventually we were talking about, you know, Stitch's voice. And Dean said, well, why don't we just use yours? You're not famous and you're not going to cause trouble. Because the concern on Dean and my part was that if we did hire Robert Redford or Robin Williams, and they only had like 15 lines, and even those lines were like two words at a time, right? That there might be some trouble that would develop from that. It would be very easy to imagine that eventually the studio would come around and say, well, if you got Robin Williams or Robert Redford, why don't you give them a bigger role? And that would be a disaster because that would mean that we were moving the film and pointing it in the wrong direction just to placate somebody, right? And we didn't know that that was going to happen, but we thought, let's ensure that we never even have to have that discussion by putting somebody like me in that role. And nobody wants more of me, right? So, <laughs> so, so it was like, it was perfect. Is it something that you can go in and out of, or is it something you have to warm up to? No, I can just go in and out of it. Do you think Moana could have been made without Lilo and Stitch? I never thought about that before. I like the, I like the idea that maybe we've paved the way for things and that maybe the idea that was like, you know, the idea that you don't have to do one film in one place and then you can never visit it again. So I, I was really excited that Moana was revisiting that region. I rewatched the film last night and I probably haven't seen it since I took my kids to see it in theaters 20 years ago. And I was reminded just how strong the theme of family is that runs through it. And I just love that it's not just this picturesque idea of a family, but that how family is sometimes just a group of people who love each other for who they are. Mm. When you look back over the years, how do you feel about the legacy of Lilo and Stitch? I'm so proud of it. And, and you know, we were busy doing certain things. And you're so busy making this film and, and getting all the story problems worked out that you don't necessarily think about the larger impact that it might have. And one of the wonderful things about something like Lilo and Stitch making a movie is that it endures. It has this staying power. And over the years, more and more people see it for the first time. And over the years, both Dean and I have heard from people who have been touched by this film in various ways, and it has really meant something to them. And that's just absolutely so exciting. And 
yeah, films will find their audience and it's it's just always going to be out there. That's the neat thing about animation. Animation is not the easiest thing to make. It's a very labor intensive thing and it takes many, many years to get one made. But once it's made, it sticks around and it continues to speak to people. And that's just, it's amazing and it's wonderful. Right on. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate your time. Okay, take it easy. That was a rebroadcast of an interview HPR's Russell Subiano did with Chris Sanders, co-director and co-writer of Lilo and Stitch. That interview originally aired on July 7th, 2022. Sanders says Disney is working on a live-action version of the film, though he's not involved in the project. Well, that wraps it up for today. You got some feedback for us? Do you have a really cool job or maybe know someone who does? Share your comments or questions by what you heard by calling your talkback line 808-792-8217. You can email us too at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on the Hawaii Public Radio Facebook page. Our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. The Becker Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Tuesday. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.